beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends. We are the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks a lot for joining us. We're here every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock and starting our holiday fun drive today. So we have a real special program. I'm anxious to get right into it, but I want to remind you that without you, we cannot broadcast anything on these airways. We have no commercial sponsors. We are listener-supported, powered by the people, Radical Free Speech Radio. This is progressive, pro-democracy, community radio, and we need your support. It's imperative that you join us. So we do these fun drives every so often to remind you of the opportunity that you have to call us or go to our website and make a pledge, a donation, a contribution, It's tax deductible. We are a charity, legally a 501c3 tax deductible charity. So whatever your contribution, as little as $25 once a year makes you a voting member of KPFK. You can get involved in a variety of ways then. But we have some really nice premiums for you at the $100 level, the $150 level, And and personally, I like to promote the pay-as-you-go sustainer circle where as little as $10 a month is drawn from your account that you set up on the website. And uh, again, what's $10 a month? You're not even going to miss it. And yet, that's a nice contribution of $120 annually or $15 a month, or $20 a month. If you're working, if you're employed, you may even be able to contribute much more than that. But we'd love for you to do it now. Do it during this hour. Just call now, 818-985-5735, or 818-985-KPFK, and make your contribution over the phone. Even easier, and we get a little more money, too, if we don't have to pay the phone room people. Instead, you just go to our website at kpfk.org and set it up yourself. That's really the easiest way to do it, I think. And then you can settle back and listen to our guests today. kpfk.org slash donate. And then look for Sustainer Circle or Support KPFK and... Find your favorite way to make a contribution to be a part of this community, a member of the KPFK family. You'll feel better for it, and we appreciate it. My guest today is an extraordinary individual. You're going to just love this program. I so appreciate him finding the time to do this show. Someone who has what I think may be a surprising amount of knowledge and opinion 
on the topic of mysticism and consciousness. This is a program about consciousness, about awareness, about um, a lot of the research that is coming out of quantum physics that really tends to suggest that the ancient mystics, East and West, have been right about uh, our perceptions of what we call solid reality. And uh, a fellow that's uh, probably best known for taking some healthy swipes at organized religion through his, I think, best-known films, uh, Life of Brian and Search for the Holy Grail. Uh, this is John Cleese, Monty Python, Faulty Towers, our guest today on The Ageless Wisdom. John, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us. Nice to see you. Very happy to chat about this stuff anytime you like. What is the nature of your interest? Does it go back to when you were a lad that uh, you knew something was wrong with religion, but you were curious about the nature of existence? I mean, yeah, I think it was a sort of a vague, unfocused curiosity about whether there might be a purpose to our life other than getting a new car and a bigger house. And um, I was, uh, when I was teaching, uh, which I did just before I went to Cambridge, uh, there was a teacher there who taught me when I'd been a pupil at the school, and I asked him what poem I should, I should learn. And he said, um, uh, the elegy set in a country churchyard by Thomas Gray. And I read that, and I, I learned it at that point. I forgot most of it now, but there were things in it that just, rang a bell with me, you know, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Uh, and so it's always been pretty obvious to me that um, the sort of things that people are trying to achieve in terms of power and importance and fame uh, don't add up to much in the long run. Uh, as um, Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, so I've been fascinated to know uh, whether... Uh, something might go on after we die. And I was very lucky through Michael Murphy at Esalen to be invited to join a group that studied survival. Uh, and I went to that for about 10 years and then I stopped doing that because my divorce meant I <laughs> didn't have that sort of free time. Um, and then I uh, got to know uh, people in the DOPS department, Department of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia. Um, Bruce Grayson and Jim Tucker and Ed Kelly, people there, who I met through um, uh, these seminars on survival that I used to go to at Esalen at Big Sur once a year. So it's just been building slowly. And recently I read the most important book I've ever read, which is called The Master and His Emissary. Now, Michael, have you heard of this? No, I haven't. It's quite remarkable. It's written by one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, but a man um, who is very nice. And um, the reason we seem to be friends is that I can make him laugh. <laughs> so I have seminars with him, which most people pay a fortune for, and uh, in, in repayment I make him laugh or read my scripts. Ian McGilchrist used to teach English at Oxford, and then he decided, which I think is incredibly significant, that you shouldn't explain poems, you should experience them. 
And he then became a doctor, and then he became a psychiatrist, and then he went to Johns Hopkins, and he studied neuroimaging of the brain. And he's written this book, The Master and His Emissary, which is a not a very sexy title. Um, and uh, he talks about the fact that our hemispheres are different and that they experience the world differently and that a balance between the two of them is good and that we have lost that since probably then enlightenment 200 years ago with the result that the left brain which is the logical brain that is good for um, analyzing things and controlling things has taken uh, precedence and seems to have a higher what's the word reputation than the right brain which is more to do with um, a sense of value, what is valuable in life. And uh, it's explained a whole lot of things to me, Michael, that I'd never understood before, like why critics seem to be superior to the people they're criticizing, because it's fundamentally terribly funny that people who can't write, direct, or act are put in judgment over people who can. I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's kind of mad. Why do we accept it? It's because the left brain uh, tends to be dominant over the right, not because it's, you know, true in, in the real world. Well, there's a famous uh, video on YouTube, a TED Talk by a brain scientist. I think it's probably 10 or 12 years old now, Jill Bolta-Taylor. And she talks about her experience having a stroke, which at the time completely shut down her left brain so that only the right brain was working, and she describes being in the shower waiting for the ambulance to arrive, cleaning up a bit, and she could not distinguish the energy, the molecular structure of her hands and her arms from the atmosphere and the air around her. It just was perceived by her through this right brain only as just one field, and it's, uh, if you haven't seen the video, it's... Uh, no, but I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. I didn't know there was a video out there, but I know about her experience. The most extraordinary thing, which I learned from Ian, is that we kind of think the left brain is the clever one, the manipulative one, the one that can make things happen. Uh, and yet, if people have uh, the left brain badly damaged, uh, they can't function at all. The right brain which gives a sense of meaning. If that is intact, then people can function. But if the left brain is damaged, people can't function, which is very strange if you think that the left brain is supposed to be about logic. So you've got a position where it's the right brain that gives the context to things. You see people, for example, who are a little bit, um, what's the word, on the spectrum, have difficulty with irony. And that's because irony is not, a, not understood by the left hemisphere. Uh, the, the, the right hemisphere gives you the context and says, no, this statement is ironic. It actually means the opposite of what the words say, whereas the left hemisphere would be saying, uh, no, no, these are the words and these are the dictionary definitions, and you can't say that that's, they have any other meaning, whereas the right brain knows that if you use irony or sarcasm, you're actually meaning the opposite of what the words say. I'd like to talk to you a little bit uh, in the second segment today about humor and what makes something funny. So we'll, we'll come back to irony perhaps, but yeah. um, 
The direction that we're going in uh, reminds me of another video I saw of you talking about the presumption that awareness or consciousness is an epiphenomena of brain chemistry. Okay. Yes. I, I think we're beginning to get the pony in front of the cart here that... Uh, yes, that's right. The, the brain is not really the source of awareness, do you think? It's very hard for people to understand this when they first come across the idea because we assume that uh, when your brain shuts down, uh, your mind shuts down, you lose consciousness. And uh, the extraordinary thing is it simply isn't the case. Um, for example, they now know that when people have psi experiences, I'm talking about things like remote viewing, um, that they get better results when their brain is very, very calm. If they sit in one of those immersion tanks, for example, and put half ping pong balls over their eyes so that after a time they don't know if their eyes are shut or open, in those circumstances they get the best results on their psi abilities, which suggests that when it's the brain is at its very quietest, that is when the psi abilities are at their peak. And there's a lot of neuroimaging that shows that uh, that, that is the case, that, that a great activity in the brain uh, means that you can't get in contact with the more interesting stuff. If we're rushing around looking at our watches and checking our phones all the time, we're not likely to have a religious experience or any kind of psychic experience. And, and once you realize that, it explains, for example, what, what they're thinking is that the, the brain is, if I can use this analogy, a little bit like a television set, that when you're watching a show, the show is not being made inside the television set. It's being made somewhere else, and the television set is picking it up somehow. And the suggestion is that uh, real consciousness is being picked up by the brain, but is not being created by the brain. Now, this causes scandal amongst, you know, mainstream scientists, but the fact is they've never yet been able to explain how matter can produce mind. And there were very interesting examples, so I'll tell you this, where people have had degenerative brain diseases and have generally sort of lost their marbles gently over the years, and yet just before death, for three or four days, they become quite lucid. And all of a sudden, all their powers have come back. Well, how would that be possible if the brain, which is degenerated, was, you see what I mean, was producing consciousness? Uh, it's just the lack of activity in the brain um, starts to make them more able to, to, to pick up consciousness in the same way the TV set picks up the television signal. I've had discussions with people who believe that thinking is fundamental and that awareness springs from this mental activity, and yet it always occurred to me, I don't know about always, but for many years it's occurred to me that when we draw a blank, when we have that experience of uh, maybe trying to remember somebody's name or... Mm, mm, tip of the tongue stuff, yeah, tip of the tongue. Yeah, and you go blank for a second, you don't go unconscious. Yes. So the mind empties for a moment, deer in the headlights kind of uh, stalling out, 
And yet uh, we're very aware of it. We're quite aware of that and can recall the experience. And Well, the other thing about it, when you have the tip of the tongue phenomenon where you just can't quite remember someone's name and you sort of know it's about seven letters beginning with an S, you know, the more you pursue it, the more it seems to vanish into the distance and you sort of chase after it and it's gone. And then if you suddenly um, say, just give up, and start about something else, and suddenly, two minutes later, the bot, it just pops back in your brain when you're not trying. Now, that's a paradox. It's very hard to explain that if you're just talking about the ordinary view of what consciousness and thinking is. And also, you see, I think one of the problems is people attribute, this may sound very strange, almost too, important, too much importance to words. Uh, i tell you a amusing story once. I was reading a very posh uh, philosophical book uh, by a guy called Collingwood called The Great Le Le Leviathan. And um, in it, he said, uh, thinking is not possible without words. And that bothered me. And the that day, I went down in the afternoon to a conservation zoo, and I was watching uh, an orangutan and he'd eaten his fruit and one of the slices of orange had slipped through under the bars into the guttering and he looked at it and it was quite clear he couldn't reach it and he looked around and picked up a straw pushed the straw through the bars and just flicked the orange slice back till he could pick it up with his hand and i thought that is thinking and no words were involved and I think the problem with philosophers is that they think that words play a much larger part in the way we operate than they actually do. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I've seen video of microscopes uh, looking at slime mold solving the shortest path to food problem in a microscopic maze. So here's a single-cell creature with no neurons, certainly no nervous system or brain that can solve problems, and that indicates awareness. That's right, and plants, more complex things, but still only plants, will grow in the direction of the light. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's an intelligence. So the idea that consciousness is spread throughout the universe, I think it's called panpsychism, seems to me to be the best explanation that we have at the moment. But the idea that the consciousness is produced in the brain is contradicted by so much stuff, like all the uh, near-death experiences that happen to people when, for example, their lives are in danger and very frequently when they're on the operating table under conditions where every part of the brain has been shut down to increase the safety of the operation, they are still able later on to report what went on in the operating theater and indeed what was going on outside the operating theater. Sometimes I met a girl who told me that this has happened to her and that she had left the room. She'd looked down at herself, wondered what all the fuss was about, and then wandered off down the hall and looked in the waiting room and there her family was there uh, watching Gilligan's Wake <laughs> or Gilligan's Island or something. And she remembered this. But, of course, the great problem is, Michael, people are ashamed of this. 
they get very embarrassed because they think other people will think they're crazy. Oh. Why we don't hear about this stuff until we create the right conditions for people to feel they can talk about it without people thinking they're crackers. I guess I've accepted that people think I'm crazy for so long. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis said to me once that she was 15 when she realized the only people who were of any interest to her were the weird ones. And I totally agree with her. You know, uh, Bill Maher is well known for his anti-religious uh, uh, atheist uh, position, and I saw him uh, make a remark to you a couple of years ago that he thought you were going to pick up on uh, a, some some slam against religion and what fools religious people are. And your comment was, well, I think the mystics have something to say and yeah. that was the end of it and I, I wonder if you ever did you did you ever follow up with bill maher on that do you think he no i didn't but it's entirely right i mean the trouble with religion is that when you have the leader of the religion let's say jesus christ um that uh, the people around him are very affected by what he says and then the next generation or two are, are real true believers in the sense not of learning uh, phrases and parroting on the moth but true believers in the sense of living as christ was uh, proposing and then what happens and this happens to almost all religious uh, organizations except i think probably the buddhists and the quakers what happens is that um by the, about the fifth or sixth generation people are joining the church uh you know because it has a good dental plan you see what I mean? And they're not people who are inspired by the same pure motives of the early followers. They are people who sort of quite like being pious, and it gives them good business contacts. So you get people in there um, who are not operating at the spiritual level of the guy who founded the religion. And then you find that among the people in that church, it is inevitably the power seekers who rise to the top because that's what power seekers want to do. So they get to the top and then they start bothering about Let's take the, the, the Catholic Church as the obvious example, is that they start bothering about um, making the Catholic Church as, as, as strong or as powerful, as influential, as rich, and as numerous as possible. Whereas the Catholic Church is trying to teach Christ's teaching, which is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the uh, peacemakers, blessed are the pure in spirit. Uh, th th this is rather different from blessed are the people who are at the top of organization and making the organization more powerful. In other words, how can a powerful authoritarian organization be teaching what Christ taught, which is the complete opposite? <laughs> But this is not true of the original teaching. It's the distortion that happens because people are not at the same spiritual level later on as they were as the leader was at the start. Yeah, we see that. Uh, you used the word irony earlier. We see that same irony in the riches of the church, the gold and the finery. And here Christ uh, refused to even wear shoes or ride a horse. Clearly an anti-materialist, and yet... Yes, yes, you know, we, we celebrate it with gold and uh, expensive tapestries and, and such. 
if you take the televangelists, uh, they are phenomenally wealthy, and Christ did not say, blessed are the rich. The monotheism, I read a quote once by a, an old uh, Greek philosopher, I'm trying to remember, Pictetus or someone like that, and he said, uh, reportedly, if horses had gods, surely they would look like horses. Yes, that's quite right. And I don't think that matters, because I think if you're having some kind of religious vision, the mind simply translates it into the symbols that mean religious vision for you, and that a Buddhist or someone else would have different figures there, but it's still an experience. It's, you know, the, at, a, at a very deep level, um, the world is not what it seems. You know, any um, uh, quantum physicist will tell you that. Uh, you know, when we think we see things, it's all about electrical impulses coming into our stimulating parts of our brain. And our, you know, so nothing is what it seems. Uh, and that's why I, I agree with what you just said. Well, I think that's one of the primary distinctions between monism and monotheism is in the East, there is an awareness uh, among the Hindus and the, and the Buddhists and, and the Taoists and others that what they're perceiving is merely that. It's an illusion. It's a perception that's assembled inside our heads. Mm. You don't really see something over there. You see light reflected off it in your brain. That's right. Whereas the, uh, the Westerner, the Judeo-Christian Muslim, the monotheist is very objective. We're back to that left brain idea. Well, the problem, the problem with the left brain is that it's literal-minded, as we said. And the fact is that most of the great uh, teachers are the opposite of literal-minded people. You see what I mean? I've never met anybody highly intelligent who was literal-minded. It's a sort of simple-minded approach to life to think things are exactly as they look. It's all much more complicated and paradoxical and interesting than that. And beautiful. And beautiful, yes, absolutely. Yes. When you see things as allegory and metaphor and uh, deeply symbolic, it becomes... Yes, that's what a religion is about, because anybody who's had a religious experience always says, well, the words of ordinary life just can't convey it. You know, we can convey it roughly, but it's just not part of ordinary life, so you can't use ordinary life words to convey it. John, we have to take a short break. We have another segment. This is great. I'm, I'm just really enjoying chatting with you uh, about this. And I want to touch a little bit on the uh, Life of Brian and Search for the Holy Grail movies and uh, how those came about. But uh, let's take a short break and we'll come back. Our guest is John Cleese. If you haven't figured that out, and we're talking about <laughs> mysticism and magic and consciousness and all manner of uh, immaterial things. So uh, <laughs> stay with us. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. And we're back with the Mystery School on KPFK. My guest today, John Cleese from Monty Python, Faulty Towers, and so many others. I had the pleasure of meeting you. I don't suppose you remember this, but uh, you and Eric Idle did an event in Pasadena. Yes, that's right. 
And my stepdaughter, Haley Carr, introduced us uh, backstage after the event. And That's right. Her husband, Guy, I got to know her because uh, Guy was the assistant director of a movie I did. And then he introduced her to the beautiful Haley. And we're hoping we can do something together. Well, that would be wonderful. But uh, I never realized that uh, you are the faulty tower. I never knew you were so tall. I know people are quite surprised I'm 6'4", so I'm not absolutely enormous, but I am fairly tall, and I seem as I get older to get bigger because I can't get through doorways <laughs> as easily as I could. But, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty good size. Let's talk about putting these movies together. Uh, I think it was quite a, uh, an audacious uh uh, idea to do the life of Brian and search for the Holy Grail and yes. How did that come about? Do do your Python buddies share your interest in uh, finding a more refined view of religion? And I don't think that they are particularly. I'm just thinking of them. Eric veers in that direction, but Eric is very interested in space and cosmology which is i'm interested in it but I'm, I'm more interested in the human mind i think uh, samuel johnson said the correct uh, study for man is man and i think that man is primarily interesting because of his mind so i've always been interested in the psychological stuff and even when i didn't know much about it in the you know when i was in my mid-teens i remember watching bbc programs in black and white and some of them were about psychological experiments and they stuck in my mind in a way that most information didn't well these movies for me never get old and i think they're absolutely hilarious not because i'm irreverent but quite the contrary because mysticism and spirituality has always been so near and dear to me i, I I, I, you know, I experimented with psychedelics in college and yeah. never really been the same after that. <laughs> somebody somebody said, uh, after dosing me with an industrial uh, hit of acid, that uh, he walked away and then he turned on a heel and came back and said, by the way, you'll never be the same. <laughs> I had one experience of LSD under someone who knew probably more about it than anyone in America, so that I, I don't take risks like that. And I had it, and uh, afterwards, I think it just, the, it, what astounded me was to realize how visually creative my mind was, because I've never been very strong visually, and the patterns and shapes and sizes that I was seeing in all colors were absolutely extraordinary. And I had about 10 minutes in the middle when I got a bit panicky and the uh, guy supervising me thought it was recalling a, a bit of a struggle I had in the birth canal. I did not have an easy birth. And that passed. And then I, I just liked the experience. I wasn't after it. I never felt changed by it. But I think if you did, because those psychedelics are basically relaxing the mind to let the real stuff in when it's not occupied with everyday trivia. That was my take, that the brain is a filter and the acid opened the filter. That's right. I'm sure that's correct. Yeah. That I wasn't hallucinating. I just began to see what was swirling all around me anyway. 
Well, the people who can't explain it always say it's a, a, a hallucination, but the huge difference between these experiences and hallucinations is the sheer clarity of these experiences, which people, which is why people remember them afterwards, and very frequently, particularly after near-death experiences, they lose their fear of death, which is absolutely extraordinary. And the idea that a hallucination could do that is basically, I think, ridiculous. Well, a psychedelic was the point where I separated awareness from thinking, uh-huh. because. I I knew I was mentally insane on this acid. My thought process was schizophrenic. But the clarity, as you say, the awareness, was as as if I had put on these spectacles from heaven and things were so, well, apparent, but also clear and obvious. And not verbal, not verbal at all. Uh, again, there aren't there aren't words, but uh... I was watching a program yesterday where somebody was talking about a near death experience when he was clinically dead for twenty minutes, and the wonderful calm rural visions that he had while he was gone, and how voices told him he couldn't come yet and had to go back. I mean, the whole thing was, and this is astounding. He just lost the fear of death as a result of that one experience, which is a wonderful thing because deep down people are so frightened of dying. I, I, I'm not frightened of dying. I just don't want to do it yet. <laughs> <laughs> we interviewed on this program not long ago a Dr. Eben Alexander. Oh, yes, I've read his book, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about his experience during a seven-day coma of being on the other side, so to speak. And he existed for much of the time as a pinpoint of awareness on the wing of a butterfly. Ah. Not, not, he wasn't the butterfly. He was a pinpoint of awareness on the wing. Wonderful. And he, of course, had these experiences despite the fact that part of his brain was completely destroyed by his illness, right? His cortex is eaten away. I said, I asked him, I said, how do you function now? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> I love people who say things like that. You know, I love them because it, it reminds us that it's all a mystery and we don't begin to understand what any of it's about. But people nevertheless think they do and they're clowns. <laughs> He, he he wrote it off, I think, as brain plasticity. Oh, well, that's a nice phrase. I might use it myself one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that uh, the brain the brain can learn different parts of the brain yeah. to take over other parts that are damaged. I don't think there's any doubt that some people acquire the most extraordinary powers. I, I knew an incarnate llama, and there were certain things that happened around him that made me think he was magical. I was very upset once because my daughter was in danger. I, I don't suppose I've ever been more upset, and he just very gently put his hand on my head, and about 15 seconds later, I was quite calm and sensible again. I mean, you know, the laying on of hands, maybe some of the old bishops could do this. I want to ask you a little about uh, humor and what makes something funny. Uh, 
I think about my favorite Python bits, and they seem to be something very mundane that is treated in a ridiculous way. It might be your silly walk, for example. It might be, um, oh God, the 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 race where the runners have have no sense of direction. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh, it could be. Uh, the two I think of together, the dead parrot and uh, bring out your dead. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm not dead. What am I to presume about what makes that funny? Something very mundane, taking to the absurd. I, I think people often ask me this, and I, I don't know, you can really say, because it's a very, very fine line. Um, example I could give is one of the other shows I do. If you've ever seen Faulty Towers, where I play a guy who runs a hotel, and at one point there I beat my car with a branch. And people think it's terribly funny because they've had that kind of frustration. But when I first did it, I broke a branch off and I hit the car with it, and the branch was, was sort of rigid. And to everyone's surprise, it just wasn't funny. And I went and got another branch and, and hit it again, and it still wasn't funny because the branch was too floppy. So I finally went and got another branch and tried that, and it was hilarious. Now, in an analysis of humor, how could you say why one branch was funnier than another? It's very, very delicate. And what people don't realize is that it's a separate world from drama. There are some actors who can do both. And there are other actors who can do one terribly well, but can't do the other. And they're very separate. They're quite separate skills. And one of the great problems is that most comedies are made by people who don't know that it's not a form of drama. Well, timing seems to be particularly important, don't you think? Yes, yes, it is. But I think timing's important in drama too. But it's the thing about comedy is that you have to learn comedy technique and this can't be taught by a series of rules what you have to do is you have to do it in front of an audience many times before you get <clears throat> your unconscious learns these extraordinarily delicate and quite difficult rules and and you often don't know whether something's going to be funny i mean i discovered that the marx brothers who i adore uh, they have some incredibly funny sequences in their films but they used to take them on tour to a theater before they made the filming because it took them three weeks in front of an audience to figure out how to do some of the stuff. And then the audience told them because the audience said, yes, that's funny, that's not funny. Then they went back and keeping the same timing, they put it on film and it's absolutely wonderful. But it's very subtle. And what is rather irritating to people like myself, and I think that a lot of other comedians feel the same, is that somehow, Comedy is, is regarded as the sort of poor cousin of drama, whereas anyone, any actor, actress, or that's probably old-fashioned to say that, but any actor who can do both will always tell you that the comedy is much harder because when you're acting as an actor, you're really just trying to be real. 
And when you're doing good comedy, not cheap comedy, but when you're doing good comedy, you've got to be real and then put the comedy technique on the top of it. So it's more demanding. I think there's something magical about the fact that we laugh, that we have humor. Uh, uh, it's like music. It's just ineffable in its ability to transform, even to heal. Yeah. Well, I, I, I never thought it was as important as I do now. But a few years ago, I went to a film uh, festival in Sarajevo in Bosnia, and they were telling me about the time when the Serbs up in the hills were besieging them. And because uh, Sarajevo's in a valley, and the Serbs were up in the hill, and they were lobbing uh, shells down and uh, shooting people with telescopic sights um, as they crossed the street. And it was unbelievable. And the famous European Union did absolutely nothing about it for four years until Clinton stepped in. But what they told me was this. It was a horrible time for them. Horrible. But they found an underground garage and they converted it into a cinema. And after night, when it was after dark, when it was okay to cross the street, they would all congregate and watch comedy. And a lot of it, I'm proud to say, was Python comedy. And afterwards, they said, we just felt better. Nothing had changed. They were still in an appalling situation, but they came out of it feeling better. And that's magical. It is. Magical, that's the word for it. Uh, I, I also find that, um, or at least I, I find curious, the idea that some significant number of comedians are really distressed and depressed. Um, and I wonder if their comedy develops from their need to cope with a distressful life. I wonder. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I'm thinking of Robin Williams, for example. Yes, yes. Well, I think that comedy can be used to keep things at a distance so that you don't really have. I mean, I knew Robin Williams a little bit. I used to bump into him in the same drugstore in New York because I had a flat on, uh, what was it, a, uh, 76th Street. And he was, uh, and we bump into each other. Uh, what it was, was lovely about it was he was always terribly funny. He'd go into a routine, but I don't think it was even what he'd done before, and it would be terribly, terribly funny. But I never felt we talked. I never felt that we had a proper conversation. Um, and Eric Idle, who knew him much better than I did, said, no, that takes time. It's only when he uh, really gets to know you and feels completely comfortable. Then he talks, but not otherwise. So a lot of comedians, I think, use comedy as a way of keeping everything uncomfortable at a distance. But I don't think it's true of all comedians. I mean, if you take some of the funniest writers, I mean, Mark Twain, uh, I think he would have been rather good company. Well, perhaps there are those then that, again, use comedy as a shield. I know Robin was real uh, impressed by Jonathan Winters, who really lived on the edge of oh, yeah. sanity and insanity. And I, maybe it's a refuge to yeah. always be on, to fall into the characters. 
Well, let me ask you this, Michael. Do you think it's just more artistic people or creative people are like this? Because when you look at a lot of the greatest composers and people like that, their private lives are pretty disastrous. You know, if you look at painters, and somebody once said to me, well, it's because that's all they care about. They only care about their art. They can't be bothered with everyday trivia. That's why their lives are so disorganized. And I thought, well, that's true. But I think that there's, that there's something else going on. You see, I think real creativity comes from the unconscious. If you've got a very fine, logical, intellectual mind, you can make small changes. But when you make huge changes, when you come up with breakthroughs, they're not solved because you're good at logic, because there are very logical, very brilliant intellectuals who aren't creative at all. Creativity is based on the ability to, 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 to play. And play means getting relatively calm so that stuff can come up from your unconscious, not as neatly typed out messages, but as thoughts and images and things. Oh, that might be fun, you suddenly think. Oh, how do we do that, you know? And very frequently these moments come when you're in the shower or having a walk. They're not, not because you, they, it helps that you've beaten your brains out beforehand because it's like priming the pump. But once you have thought about something, then the insight probably comes when you're not thinking about it. So this means that, it, that a lot of creative people are, are, are better at letting their unconscious speak to them. But of course, if you let the unconscious speak to you too much, then you're going to go a bit crazy because there's a lot of stuff down there. If it comes up in a rush, it's very hard to, to manage it without help, you know, without a therapist. It is a balance, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to walk in both worlds at the same time. That's right. It's a balance. You know, um, you really have gone back to the tip of the tongue phenomena that we talked about a few minutes ago, where the harder you try, the worse you do. Yes. You, you, you've, you've touched on this uh, idea of needing to relax, to sort of put the left brain in abeyance somewhat. Uh, to access the unconscious. My question is, do you meditate? I sometimes um, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I just sit quietly. I used to do it much more regularly. Sometimes now I just sit and just become of the aware of the anxieties and tightnesses in my body. And what I discover is that just by thinking about them or focusing on them, they seem to get better without my doing anything else. But uh, with talking about this, it occurs to me that I was uh, talking to a producer, a lovely guy uh, called um, Scott Landis, who's a, a, a producer, and he's just got a show in London about the fighting that was going on behind the camera um, during the making of the film Jaws. And, of course, The Godfather was a famously unhappy set with everybody hating everyone. But you see, I don't think you can make a good comedy if there's a lot of tension. I think comedy, it's a little like sport. You play your best forehand or backhand when you're feeling confident, when you just have this extra split second more to do it instead of rushing it. And it's a bit like that in comedy. If you lose confidence, if the audience isn't laughing, you can start snatching at the comedy. 
like snatching at the forehand, and then it isn't as effective. And I just think that comedy requires relaxation in a way that a war movie doesn't. Well, that's the secret of sports psychology and accelerated learning also mm. is relaxation, not to the point of being nonchalant. Oh, no, no. There is something called eustress, E-U stress, which is, you know, as a performer, uh, the difference between stage fright and stage fever. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's a good thing to be a little anxious before a performance, but then there's a point of diminishing return where you become paralyzed and that's right and your performance is degraded so again to find that balance yeah that's right to to psych up but still be i'll say graceful and elegant well, it's, it's as a sportsman will say it's a sort of mental sharpness and physical relaxation which is hard to achieve but it's perfect if you can well i think there's a lot of examples in sports of people approaching the game in a very relaxed, I mean, Babe Ruth pointing it at right field. Uh, he knew he was going to hit that ball. There was just <laughs> That's right. no question about it. Right. But he also knew that uh, it was important not to be afraid to strike out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the, one of the, one of the things that stops creativity is the fear of making a mistake. I wrote this little book about creativity, and uh, it's all about uh, one, no interruptions, and two, don't worry about whether you make a mistake, because when you're being creative, until you explore the thought, you don't know if it is a mistake or not, because you've never been there before. What is the title of that book, John? Is that available yeah, well, yet? It's rather cleverly titled. It's called Creativity. <laughs> which is not a very creative title. <laughs> but it's a very short book which can be read in an hour. And if anyone's listening who wants to be a writer in particular, uh, I would honestly suggest you read it because it's my uh, concentrated experience of discovering at the age of 21, 22 that i had creative ability which i had no idea i had and so i kind of watched it because i was curious because it didn't know that i was creative and as a result of watching it and reading and so forth i boiled it down into a little book that'd be read in about 50 55 minutes and i think it's the best primer i know of just telling people particularly right young writers listening now how do you become more creative? And a lot of it, sorry, Michael, a lot of it is, of course, the opposite of what you were taught at school. Yeah, of course. I mean, children are so naturally creative, and then they go to school and lose that uh, that creativity. They're, they're... It's, it's kind of sad. You see, it's not that it's beaten out of them. I'll give you an example. When I was 15, I had to write an essay on the subject of time, and I happen to know from a discussion earlier with a teacher what an extraordinarily complex thing it is, how hard it is to actually talk about time. We know what it is, but try and put it into words. So I gave up and I wrote the whole essay about the fact that I hadn't had enough time to write the essay. Now, <laughs> that's quite amusing. I handed it in and the teacher said to me, please, this isn't a proper essay. 
He didn't say this is quite quirky or quite amusing or you should think about it. He just said it's not a proper essay. That's how the creativity is sucked out of kids. Well, anybody who has given themselves permission not to be proper, right. not to be so concerned with what others may think, uh, knows a freedom that uh, there's, there's just no going back. You can't get that genie back in the bottle and who would want to that's that's real freedom yes that's right that's right john cleese what a pleasure to chat with you today and i only wish we had more time on behalf of my audience and millions and millions of other people thank you for who you are and what you do and your willingness to keep plugging away uh when you don't need to after all these years <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need to, Michael. Do you know about my third divorce? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to, I promise you. But I still enjoy some things like this kind of conversation. What I don't enjoy is making arrangements. <sighs> yes, well, I really appreciate it, and I know my audience does as well. And best to you and all your endeavors and uh, have a wonderful holiday season thank you michael and thanks for doing a program like this well, you're welcome john cleese believe it or not on kpfk for your dining and dancing pleasure and, uh, <laughs> this has been the ageless wisdom mystery school on 90.7 fm for all of southern california and i'll be back with a few closing words right after this you're listening to KPFK. It's KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM for all of Southern California, live streaming at kpfk.org. Wow, that was uh, really something. My question to you is where in the world are you going to hear a program like this with John Cleese from Monty Python, Faulty Towers, all those great movies, Search for the Holy Grail, uh, Life of Brian, The Meaning of Life? Where are you going to hear a fellow like this talking about consciousness, talking about the bicameral mind, talking about incidents in his childhood that changed his life forevermore, the, the time when he realized he had talent and could entertain. Where are you going to hear someone chatting with John Cleese about his experience with LSD? Only on KPFK. And it only happens because people like you support this radio station with modest, affordable contributions. Like... $10 once a month, $20 once a month. You go to kpfk.org, you can choose any amount you want. If you're out of work or you're a student, $5 a month. That makes you a member of KPFK. It gives you voting rights. You're part of the family. You can listen with a free conscience any time of the day or night, 24-7, every single day of the year. And... For those who are working, who are fortunate enough to have gainful employment, well, maybe 20 bucks a month or $50 a month. Let your conscience choose. But you can either call us right now at 818-985-5735. 
That's 818-985-KPFK. Or more simply, just go to the website and set it up yourself. kpfk.org forward slash donate. Look for Sustainer Circle, set it and forget it. $10, $20 a month, a nice contribution, respectable contribution. You'll feel so good. And every time somebody appeals for money on this station, you'll have that button-busting pride of knowing I'm part of that family. I'm a member of that community. I participate and I support free speech, community radio, powered by the people. That's you. All right, 985-5735 in the 818 area code or point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. And thanks so much for joining us every Tuesday afternoon for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Thanks again to John Cleese for being with us. Stay tuned. We've got another killer program for you next week. You're going to love the guest that I have, an eminent scientist speaking on extrasensory perception, an empiricist, a hardcore Bell Labs uh, science guy who also did some espionage work using clairvoyance and remote viewing for the federal government. That's next week's show. Don't miss it. Tuesdays at 1 on 90.7 KPFK. A reminder, we podcast to all podcatchers and aggregators. You'll find us everywhere, all the directories. Search for The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And we also post on YouTube. Again, just search for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. You'll find all these programs podcast and posted on YouTube. You'll also find it at the homepage with show notes theagelesswisdom.com all right theagelesswisdom.com appreciate it as always be gentle love life and take care of each other from los angeles this is michael benner on kpfk